Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Mark chapter 5. Jesus, let me just give some context, has come from the southeast side of Galilee. He took the disciples in a boat that had a horrible windstorm. They ended up on the shoreline of, Gallery, Gal, uh, of sorry, the Gadarenes uh, to a terrifying event and sight, a demon-possessed man crying out in the night of a cemetery, just the kind of thing you want to pull your boat you know, up upon. And we see Jesus' power to bring this man from his state into an incredible place of healing and restoration. Um, so the disciples are really like, they're experiencing a lot with Jesus. This is like discipleship school 101 here. Um, and it tells us this. Here's where we pick up. The disciples get back in a boat. They're not too excited about it, probably. But verse 21, here's what the scriptures say. Let's read this together. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, that's back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Mark's favorite word, immediately. The fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why do you make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. Says, and they all ridiculed him. But when he had permitted them, or rather, when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was laying. Then he took the child by the the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked. For she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. I just love Jesus here. Here's the last verse. And that something should be given her to eat. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. God, that is our collective expression of gratitude to you this morning for what truly is a gift. We've got a lot to be thankful for today, God, from the gift of mom and then here, God, to the gift of your word. Jesus, you yourself prayed this. You said, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So that's why we're here in this moment, God, to be sanctified, to be 
taught to grow in our understanding of who you are because of your truth here, Lord. So we pray that you would use your word as an instrument to to grow us today, to speak to us. We believe that this is your word that you have spoken, and yet today, by the power of your spirit, you are still speaking your word to us as we listen. And so we we pray what what scripture calls us to, that, that you would give us this morning, God, ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us, each individually and also as a church collectively. And ultimately, God, our prayer, as it is every week, is that you would speak to us. We pray, God, that you would speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may take your seat. You're like, I thought this was one of those Protestant non-denom churches. I didn't know I'd be standing up, sitting down so much. Okay? We'll be doing a half hour of kneeling at the end of service, too. Yeah. Um, well, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, as I said, and we're studying the way of Jesus, each passage that we get to, we are focusing on a different aspect of his way. We want to learn a, 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 and, and grow in our full understanding of the way of Jesus. And I, I kind of bounced around today or this week with what I would call this title today and, and what we would land on for the way of Jesus. And it just felt so appropriate, especially because it's Mother's Day. And this reminds me of mom to really look at this passage and, and see Jesus here caring. The, the passage today shows us the way Jesus cared, his care. That's kind of the lens that we get into this, this aspect of Jesus' life through this incredible passage here, the way Jesus cared. Now, backing up, um, the, the past few chapters, this passage is a part of the past few chapters where through multiple different events, We've been seeing the overpowering authority of Jesus over anything that may come against him or his followers. That's kind of been the the goal of the past few chapters, seeing Jesus in this high and lifted up light, the light that he is. It started with Jesus overpowering nature. The storms that had arisen around the disciples in that boat um, were overcome and overpowered by Jesus' own words when he said, peace, be still. You get into chapter 5, and there's a whole, there's a whole other chaos that Jesus is going to have to still. It's the very chaos of hell that's wreaking havoc on a man whose life is made in the image of God and has been so destroyed by these demonic forces that he's, at, he's like the epitome of self-destruction and depravity and brokenness. And yet still, Jesus overpowers what was overpowering him. This has been the theme. Looking at all the things that Jesus has power over. You can think of it this way. Jesus' power over the things that we tend to come under. Maybe you think of your life right now. Maybe there's something that you feel like you're under. You ever felt that way? Like this is more powerful than me. This circumstance, this situation, this problem, this thing I'm facing, it's overpowering me. And what Mark is helping us do is to see Jesus as higher than that. Seeing his power over whatever it is you may be under. Paul prays this. I don't have the verses, but it's a great prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul prays for the church that they would know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe. You know, when we understand the power of Jesus, it's not just a theological concept, but we understand that that power that he has is relevant to my life because I belong to him. And so his power over those things mean that I can have power over those things. His victory is my victory. Is this making sense? Now, this has been kind of the theme. I got two head nods. We'll we'll do better, okay? This theme has just been building the past two chapters. Jesus' power over nature. Jesus' power over the demonic. And then here, in the verses we just read, we see Jesus' power over incurable disease. And we see Jesus' power even over death. There's nothing that can overpower Jesus. His power is over all. Now, what's especially, as I mentioned, what's especially cool about this chapter is how we see Jesus using his power. It's one thing to know that God has a lot of power. It's a whole other thing to know that God has a heart of love with his power. I mean, that really is, at the end of the day, the hope we have to anyone who has a position of power. It's not just how much power do they have, but what are they like? You ever been under someone who had a lot of power, but like the way they were made that power not as enjoyable? All right. Okay. Now, with Jesus, we see he's using his power 
and authority, notice this, to care for those who have none. Isn't that great? What, by the way, what a great example of what to do with any power God may give you. Use it to care for those who don't have any. I'm going to leverage what I have for the good of those around me. That's true leadership. Jesus models that here in this passage with the way that he cares. Like I said, you know, it's interesting, kind of, um, kind of Mother's Day-ish. It's weird. It's a story about a father, so it's kind of a Father's Day message. But I noticed at the end of the verse, there was a mother named in the passage. So I'm really glad about that, okay? It is kind of almost a Mother's Day uh, sermon. Um, but what we do see, again, as I mentioned, is this picture of mom, I think, even in this. Just the way that Jesus cared. You know, someone who cares and truly cares for you, the way we're saying Jesus does in this passage, is going to do so in a complete way. And I think it's two main aspects. They, they care for you with their hearts, and they care for you also with their hands. That's true care. Like, you can, you can have the care of hands where someone is taking care of you, but if they don't really care, it's a lot like going to the ER sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, okay, I'm just another, like, you know, person. I'm like cattle coming in here getting cared for. It's like, do you, sometimes I want to ask the nurse, do you care? All right. Like, it's one thing to be cared for with, with, with the hands and be literally treated, but not have actual care or concern or someone actually being, having compassion for your well-being. On the other hand, it, it's really like, it's great to care, but true care is going to translate to action. Would you not agree? Like, if you care, it's going to translate to how you're caring tangibly. And here in this passage, we see both elements of Jesus perfected in his ministry to these two individuals. We see the care of heart that he has, and we see the care of hands to reach in and care for what's broken. Let me just show you what Jesus says about this in the Gospel of John. We're getting this vision of Jesus that he points to in John, where Jesus says that he cares like a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. He's referring here to Psalm 23 which is the greatest display of the caring heart of God for his people, illustrated through the picture of a shepherd and his sheep. And the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need to be in want, because here's a summary of Psalm 23. He's going to care for me. He's going to care for me in every way that I need him to be. Through any time I walk through, even the valley of the shadow of death, I can trust in his care because of the character of my shepherd. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd so cares for his sheep that he even gives his life for them. He gives his life for the sheep. Uh, this isn't metaphor. This is prophetic. Jesus will go. He doesn't just care about you in some personal, immaterial way. He's displayed his care for you by dying on the cross for your sins, by becoming your sin so that you can become righteousness in him. Talk about care. He says the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He contrasts the good shepherd with, with what's called a hired servant. It's like a babysitter. You know what I'm saying? By the way, if you're going to hire a babysitter, make sure they care about your kids, right? But in this case, the hireling is someone that he, he's just there for a paycheck. It's a great model, too, for, for ministry, for leading people. You, you can be in ministry. You can serve people for the wrong reasons. And it says this, the hireling, he who is not the shepherd, just someone paid to watch over the sheep temporarily, he's someone, and here's why he doesn't care, he doesn't own the sheep. There's a lack of ownership, right? When there's lack of ownership, there's going to be a lack of care. So he sees the wolf coming. Instead of doing his job sacrificially, he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Now, I, this is Jesus, you know, profound Jesus 101. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. I love that. Why did he do that? Well, water's wet because it's water, all right? The hireling flees because he is a hireling, and here's the key characteristic, he doesn't care about the sheep. How do you understand Jesus over your life today, though? Jesus says, but I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. They're his, there's ownership, there's care and concern for them in their lives, and I am known by my own. In this passage, we see this truth on display what an incredible example of the way Jesus cared here in Mark chapter 5. We see the truth of the good shepherd. Um, interestingly enough, it's displayed through two stories. Did you notice that? It's like a story within a story. It's called sandwich structure. 
You have the beginning of one story where Jesus is caring, and smack dab in the middle of that story, it seems like this kind of out of socket, out of sorts other story that happens, and then the last story, or the first story, concludes in the end. It's, it's kind of interesting. Now, I want to point this out. Um, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, where we read these two stories, it doesn't contain some, something randomly intertwined. Like this is, you now it could look like that at first glance, like this is just Mark reporting the news, and that's true, this is what just happened. But if you look a little closer to this story, what you see is that these are two events that are beautifully interwoven. There are some incredible connections, like you ever had that kind of thing where like that was just too perfect to be a coincidence kind of a thing? Well, well that's what you have here in this passage. You have these connections between these two individuals in Mark 5 that you look on at that and you go, there's no way that this could just have been a random occurrence. It was almost like God all along was writing this story with these two lives. Let, let, me, let me unpack it a little bit. What we read about was, listen, two daughters. That's the first thing. Two daughters. We start by meeting the little girl who is the, 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 the only daughter of this ruler of the synagogue. That's the first daughter. And then there's another daughter, which is this woman. Did you see it there where Jesus calls her by name? He says, daughter. So that's the first thing. We see even in their title, they're called daughter. Uh, the first daughter, listen, is a little girl in her dying hour, a little girl at 12 years old. A little girl in her dying hour at 12 years old. The second is a suffering woman who's had an incurable disease. Listen, for how long? For 12 years long. A 12-year-old girl. So think about this. Only Jesus could, and the Holy Spirit could have inspired the Bible, by the way, in the story and history. The moment that this woman's incurable disease begins is the day of this girl's birth. It all kind of leads up to this moment. Both of these individuals, listen closely, are in desperate need of the caring touch of Jesus. The little girl is someone who, who the father invites Jesus to come touch my daughter and heal her. The woman, on the, on the contrary, is someone that comes to Jesus herself to touch him. Either way, incredibly beautifully interwoven, these two stories of two daughters in desperate need of the caring touch of Jesus. Let's see how Jesus cared for these two individuals. Let's just go back through and allow the word of God to wash over us and speak to us as we read this story a little slower. As we picked up, let's start, and here's what I'll do to kind of help us out. I don't have like as much practical points as much as I have. I'm going to make some practical points today. Don't worry. You're like, oh cool, a bunch of knowledge today. No, I got some practical stuff, but let's break up the passage here into three parts. Here's the first part. You can write this down. As we look at this passage, the first thing that we see in this story is we see a desperate invocation. A desperate invocation. We see a man desperately invoking the help of Jesus. A desperate invocation. Here's where we see that. We say that Jesus had, come, had crossed over again by, by boat to the other side, and a great multitude gathers to him. And Jesus is by the sea, and here's where we see this desperate man. It says, and behold, one of the, notice this, rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, Jesus, we'll come back to that, when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. This desperate invocation, it, it comes to Jesus through this crowd. This is pretty interesting. A massive crowd of people, thousands and thousands of people are thronging and surrounding Jesus. This is normal for Jesus. The people are often coming to Jesus and they're kind of treating him transactionally like a religious vending machine that they could come to and get what they need from him with no real desire to worship him, follow him, honor him, recognize him as God and Lord, but just kind of let me use Jesus for what I need. And it's almost contrast. It's kind of interesting. The thing that gets Jesus' attention is this man that sort of stands out in the crowd with a unique desperation. Now, let me say, this is desperation. Um, and the way that you understand that is by knowing who this guy was. His name is Jairus. We know his name. And it tells us that he's one of the rulers of the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. Uh, this man isn't a rabbi. 
but he still has high cultural and societal status and position. As a ruler of the synagogue, his job was basically to be like a, a, almost like a pastor. He wasn't the rabbi and the senior pastor teacher, but his job was sort of to care for... He's, he's kind of like Kyle. Start calling Kyle Jairus, okay? His job was to oversee the operations of the ministry, to oversee the operations of the church and what went on in the church uh, and in the temple and, and making sure that everything was being cared for. He was a man of, of high local and societal position. Um, no man in that position would ever find themselves in this posture if they were seeking to be culturally acceptable. But listen, desperate times call for desperate measures. And when, you're as, when you know how desperate you are for God, when you are as desperate for God as you should be, you, you stop caring so much what other people think. Because you're desperate for God. Now, I want to say that this man in this posture, in this position, his daughter's at the point of death. It creates desperation. It's not that he wasn't desperate for Jesus before, and now he is. Sometimes life can feel like that. Like, God, all of a sudden, because of these circumstances, I'm desperate for you. Circumstances shouldn't make you suddenly desperate for God. Circumstances like this should remind you how desperate for him you always are. And all of a sudden, through something like this, you go, oh, I... I can't do this on my own. I need you, Lord. Now, the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know their need for God, not just when things are hard, but all of the time. You know, this is kind of like, culturally speaking, the idea of being desperate doesn't have positive ideas tied to it. You know what I mean? Like, if that works, someone's like, hey, what are you just trying to, what are your goals for 2022, you know? Like, I'm just trying to be more desperate, you know? Really trying to grow in my desperation. It's like, you good? Right? That's kind of the question. I mean, to be desperate, it signifies weakness, doesn't it? It signifies, it, it signifies someone that doesn't have it together. <laughs> someone that doesn't have what they, ha they, they need in and of themselves. And listen, uh, this is the truth of a heart before God. Um, humanity was created to depend on God for all that they needed. Desperation, all it is is a picture of saying, God, I agree that I need you as much as I really do. And I don't want to just allow circumstances to create that desperation. I want to stay desperate for you. God, keep me from the tendency to think that I can do this on my own when things are going well. But what we see here in this guy is a great picture of desperation. I'm falling at your feet. Have you ever been here before where you, were, you had no other option? It was, in this case, an urgent issue, and you're like, God, I'm here I'm desperate. Now, I want to say this. God, God pays special attention to desperation. There's something about that we see here in the story, how that gets his attention. Like, almost more than the common prayer of, like, Lord, I pray you'd give me um, a good parking spot, and I pray that you would just, you know, uh, take care of this. I pray for my dog, Fufu, that she would feel better. Like, you can, Fufu, you can, like, you, we, can be so, we can be such like just religious robots in how we approach God. But there's something about, there, there's just something about someone that comes to God and says, God, I need you. And I know I need you. I don't, I don't have what I need in and of myself. And I'm coming to you. That's this man. This beautiful picture of desperation invoking Jesus. He says, my little daughter lies at the point of death. We don't know what disease she has, but she is on her deathbed. Notice the invitation. He says, please just come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. Can I ask you, what situation in your life needs this kind of request? God, I've been trying to get through this on my own, but I'm going to switch from self-management to spiritual desperation. I'm going to come to you and say, Jesus, would you come and just lay your hand on this thing? Come and touch this broken thing. I'm desperate for you to do what I can't. And that's the cry that he makes. Now notice this. I love this beautiful display. It says, so Jesus went with him. The special attention that he pays, that even, even with thousands of people all around him, the person he reacts to is the desperate heart. He goes, you, I'm coming. I'm, I'm going to deal with what's wrong in your life. And it tells us that a great multitude, as Jesus responds, throngs all around him. As Jesus 
recognizes this humble posture. Uh, Peter talks about this kind of idea in 1 Peter chapter 5, this humble desperation before God. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, just like Jairus, that he may exalt you in due time. And notice that this is often taken out of context and isolated on coffee mugs and Instagram bios and ankle tats. But, sorry, I didn't mean to say that one. All right. But casting all, that was so weird. Why do you say that? I don't know. Casting all your care upon him. Notice this, for he cares for you. The context here is that casting your care upon God is actually an act of humility and surrender. You know, you know what pride does? Pride says, I can carry this on my own. Peter was there. Peter wrote this. Peter saw the posture of this man, this humble man that said, it's not my position. I'm even involved in all the religious stuff, but I know my need for God. It takes, listen, it takes humility to trust God, to go, I'm not God. It's prideful often to think that I can handle the situation that I'm walking through and to worry about it like I myself can fix it. There's pride in that. You think you're the sovereign Lord of your own life and your own direction. There's a danger in that. So there's a humility, and I love Peter's the fisherman. He uses this fishing language, cast, right? That was a great sound effect. Cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. We see that displayed in Jesus here. Would you come and lay your hands on my daughter? He's casting his cares on Jesus. Jesus went with him. Call to me, I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things. Bring your cares to me and watch me pour out my care upon you. So we start with this desperate invocation. The desperate invocation, write the second thing down, leads to what we might call a divine interruption. A divine interruption, almost like a paradox. The idea here is from... from uh, humanity's perspective, we're going to see a woman come on the scene who from the, the, the naked eye might look like she's interrupting the miracle that Jesus is about to do. He's interrupting the ministry. He's intercepting Jesus as he's going to take care for someone else, but we see from heaven's vantage, this is a divine interruption. A divine interruption. It says this, that as Jesus, we left off with this, right? Jesus is going to go after the man, a whole multitude, a whole crowd is following him. It's pretty cool. Like back then, like to follow someone, it wasn't like you pushed a button, like I follow you. It was, it was like thousands of people would just like follow the person. Isn't that crazy? There's just like a swarm of people. Like I follow Jesus. Do you follow him? Come on, let's follow him, all right? And they're following him. Whole crowd of people. It says, now a certain woman, get introduced to our next character, had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many Physicians, the ones who were there to heal and help her, actually caused hurt and harm. She had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. You ever felt like that in life? <laughs> like, I spent all that I have to try to fix this problem, and I'm in a worse place than I started. What a, what a poetic and rich display of this woman's condition. Um, she has a gynecological issue. She has this issue of, of discharge, a flow of blood that doesn't just affect her physically, but it also affects her culturally and spiritually. According to the Levitical law, there were certain ceremonial processes and, and, even, and even consequences for this condition. Not only could she not marry or have children, but in this, in this culture, she was a societal outcast because of her condition. I'm sure stigmatized with all sorts of things about, you're like this because of this. This happened because of this sin. You know, why do you really have this condition? How about this? What haven't you repented of yet? God will heal you once you actually say sorry for that sin that you forgot about. It's like, what is it? Right? These stigmas around the cause of this issue. And, and notice, we'll get there. Notice Jesus has no time to talk about the cause of where this came from. He's just there to bring healing. How much time do we waste trying to figure out how I fell into this trap? Rather than just saying, Jesus, I'm here as I am, would you heal me? All the stigmas surrounding her condition are made worse when it tells us that the medical attention she sought has made things worse. So this woman now, notice this, she's suffering more from her cures than she is even her own disease. This is wild. Now, back then, I'm not going to 
get into what physicians may mean to you. This is a, definitely a politically tense time. Let's not talk about trusting physicians. That could go a lot of different directions. What we're going to say instead is back then, physicians, they had sort of a, um, rather than a medicinal approach to issues, they had a lot of like more magical approaches to issues. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. A physician back then doesn't have like the lab coat and the stethoscope on, like, let's check out your flow of blood, what's going on? I guess not what's going on. This, they're coming up with all sorts of kind of hoops for her to jump through. Like, and we're talking like random things, like stand on the street corner with these cucumbers and do this dance. Like, it's, it's weird. Like, if you do all these things, then you'll be better, then you'll be fine. They were more magicians than actual medical professionals. And this is the condition that she's in. She's socially outcast. She's emotionally distraught. She's physically suffering. And, you know, the, the hardest thing that we could just imagine is that it's been 12 long years of the same problem. 12 long years of the same issue. I thought that maybe after year five I'd be okay. I thought God would show up for me then. But here she is, 12 years later, and I want you to notice this really profound four or five letter phrase it says when she heard about Jesus when she heard about Jesus this is where everything changes everything is going to change in this woman's life because she hears about Jesus can I tell you that everything can change in someone's life in your life when they hear about Jesus it's really interesting to kind of contrast this too uh, she hears about Jesus um, if you remember when we were looking at Jairus, this is how, by the way, all the people are coming to Jesus back then. There's not like YouTube videos with the gospel being preached or anything. It's word of mouth. It's eyewitness testimony is, is what's going out. And an eyewitness testimony contains what you see and what you hear. Okay? Johnny Depp. We get the whole thing, right? It's like an eyewitness testimony. It's really rich. Why do you say that? I don't know either. Okay? Now, now that's a testimony. It's, it's a witness account of what you've seen and what you've heard. What's happened? What's gone on? Now, this woman, it's interesting, she comes because of what she hears. The Bible tells us about Jairus that he comes because of what he sees. Same kind of idea. You know, I think about today the, the calling that we have is those who have seen Jesus, those who, who ourselves have experienced Jesus, and how just like then, the method hasn't changed. The way that people are going to come to know Jesus today and find healing in him and salvation in him from problems they've had for years is through people who are showing and sharing him with others. That's the only way it happens. It's the only way it happens. It's through the people of God. And it's interesting. It's kind of both of these elements. We see that Jairus came to Jesus because of what he saw. This woman comes to Jesus because of what, she, what, what was heard, what was shared. And both of these are key elements of our ministry to the world around us. If all we do is show the gospel... If all we do is show the gospel in word and deed, and we do what St. Francis of Assisi said, which is uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, I love what that communicates about the need to embody the love and, and the gospel of Jesus, because people won't, you know, um, they don't care what they know, what you know, until they know that you care, that whole thing, like they have to see it. And that's true, but can I say this? It's necessary to use words when proclaiming the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're saved through the word of truth. That's, the, that's the, the seed that's planted of our salvation. Okay, Our good works alone will not lead people to know Jesus and find salvation in him. We must proclaim the goodness of Christ, the good news of Jesus, in a way that's thoughtful and not just pragmatic and, and robotic. Like, you know, here's the Romans road. Do you believe this? Okay, good. You don't? Okay, goodbye. No in a way that's thoughtful, that cares about where you're at and sees the salvation of Jesus, particularly to what you're going through. But, but we can't just share the gospel. We've also got to show the gospel. It takes both pieces of this. This is a faithful witness, someone who's sharing and showing the message of Christ. Here's the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2.9. says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, this is a principle in scripture called the, the, the priesthood of all believers, that it's not the pastor who's singularly called to evangelize the neighborhood and the city and the world. In fact, biblically, the role of the pastor is to equip the church to go out and do the ministry. 
Not hog it all and be like, come check it out. I'm going to do some ministry. You like this ministry? Yeah, all right? The goal of the pastor is to empower and equip God's people to go be the missionaries that God's called them to be in their different contexts, in their homes, their neighborhoods, in their workplaces. They're his own special people that you may, you and I, proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the mission we have. To proclaim not how great we are, but how good God is. To proclaim the goodness of the gospel. But notice the next thing he says. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So it's not just the ministry of my works, I need to make sure I'm communicating and proclaiming the ministry of words of him who has set me free. But it can't just be the ministry of words without the ministry of works. There's something about that. There's something about, especially the time we're in, where like nobody trusts anyone anymore. Like they don't really want to hear what you think is right. It's, we're just, all we're doing today is arguing over what's right and wrong. There's something profound and powerful about committing yourself in love and relationship as a neighbor to the people around you. And you create it. Listen to what you do. You create an opportunity for people to look on at your life and they go, what is it about you? You know, like you have my attention. And you say, well, it's Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you why he's so awesome. I'm not as awesome as you think I am, okay? In fact, I'm broken and in need of Jesus, and here's who he is. Just an incredible display of witnessing both in word and deed. Jairus comes to Jesus because of what he sees, and this woman comes to Jesus because of what she hears. Now, it says that when she heard about Jesus, I love this, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But look at this faith in action. She is taking action with what she's hearing about Jesus. It's one thing to be like, I've heard all there is to know about Jesus. The question really is, what have you done with it, right? I know every book of the Bible. I know every verse in the Bible. I could, I could articulate the gospel in every context around the world, right? Like you could have all the ideas, but this woman has heard about Jesus and now she's acting, true faith, she's acting based upon what she's heard. She's gonna come to him and she's gonna touch his garment for she says to herself, if I only may touch his clothes. If I heard that he's a healer, the healer that he's supposed to be, if this is the Messiah, Malachi prophesied about the sun that would rise and he would have healing in his wings. The word used for wings in Hebrew is the same Hebrew word, listen closely, that's used uh, for the corner of a prayer shawl. Same Hebrew word. Many, many, many scholars, they point to this. Many people believe this was a prophecy about Jesus, that he would be the one, the son of righteousness, that he would come with healing in his wings. The Hebrew word there, the corner of his garments. This woman knows these prophecies. She's heard about Jesus. And so she says to herself, if I could, this, this might be the one that has healing in his garments even. I don't, even, I don't even need to touch him. If I can just touch the thing that's touching him, I can be healed. If I can just come and touch and reach and get a hold of his garment, I will be made well. Do you see her faith? Do you see the way that... Can I, can I think about it, like help you think about it this way too? It's not like she's standing there and Jesus is walking by. She's not in the crowd. She's a social outcast. She's on the outside. So what she's going to do here, people probably know who she is. She's going to press through the ridicule. She's going to press through all the words of condemnation about who she is. And she's going to, listen, fight to get to Jesus here in the crowd. Can you picture it? If I could just get to him. Sometimes faith is like that. Sometimes faith isn't just like, just call out to Jesus. Hey, Jesus. See a touch? There you are. Sometimes faith is a crawl, isn't it? Sometimes faith is persevering. Sometimes faith is you got to press through the crowd. you got to press through what you're going through. Sometimes faith is against the stream. It's against the flow. It's beautiful faith. You know, there's something in powerful faith that believes God for the impossible, but I think the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I'm impressed, not with great big believing faith, but listen, long-term persevering faith. There's just something to people who walk with Jesus all the way who stick with him. Like, that's what I'm after right now. I'm 33 years young, 34 actually. I don't even know my age. That's how you know, young I am. I guess I'm getting old if I don't know the age. But 
You know, I'm at a stage in my life where, like, the thing that most impressed me now is not the charismatic giftedness of a young pastor and preacher. It's men that are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s and still honoring Jesus, still married to the same woman, still, still loving their families, people whose families love them. It's that perseverance, that faith that goes through the fire, that doesn't just wish it away, but perseveres. There's something to this, being like Paul, who says, I fought the good fight. And I wonder if your life right now, you've got to get up and keep fighting. Maybe there's, there's some resistance in your faith, and you've got to press through it. Press through the, the ridicule. Press through the opposition. Listen, to get to Jesus. He's there. He's there to be found. If you seek him, you will find him. If you search for him with all your heart. That's what happens with this woman. She presses through the crowd. She touches him. And the Bible says this immediately. Mark's favorite word, immediately. This is profound when you know this has been 12 years, right? Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. What sort of things have you been reaching out to to bring your salvation and your healing in your life for the past 12 years or so? And if you would just come and just reach out to Jesus, you'd find the healing that you need. And she found that immediately. She's immediately cured of her condition. Listen, one touch from Jesus changed everything. Notice this, though. Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him. That's just crazy. Through his garments. He senses that power had gone out of him. He said, who touched my clothes? Which is, and the disciples, like a lot of times the disciples are asking questions that were like, disciples, come on, disciples. But here it's like, they're kind of right. Jesus, you see that there are thousands of people thronging all around you. You see that we're all kind of rubbing shoulders here, and all, everyone's kind of garments are touching one another's garments, and you say, who touched me? But we know that Jesus was speaking here about a special touch that he received. A special touch of someone who drew something from him. They got what they needed from him. And you imagine at this point, too, this woman, she's not standing there going, I'm the one who touched you. No, she knows her societal status, that she shouldn't be in that crowd, let alone touch a rabbi as someone who's unclean. And I wonder what she expected from Jesus at this point. I wonder what kind of care she expected to receive from him or condemnation she expected. It says, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Here's my story. Here's what just happened. Here's been the past 12 years of my life. Here's what's happened up until that point. She, she gives him the whole spiel. She doesn't care. She's healed. She's just like, this is what's gone on. And he says to her, look at this dignity he gives her. He says, daughter. Whatever identity you've been given from culture, whatever identity your circumstances have led you to think about yourself, here's the truest thing about who you are. You're a daughter of God. It's amazing. He just speaks worth and value over her life, even with that single word, daughter. Notice this, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace. How long has it been since this woman has been able to go in peace? He says, go and be healed of your affliction. This untouchable, unclean woman touches Jesus. You know, here's what the scriptures say in Hebrews 4.15. 4, it says that we don't, by the way, I want you to see this. We got some King James translation this morning, okay? Getting serious. I, I didn't have to look. I knew that was Joseph the whole time, actually. This is funny. All right. It says, for we have not a high priest, notice this, which cannot be, what? Touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Maybe right now you're going through something, you're like, or, or you've done something, and you go, I want to come to Jesus, but this is that one thing that I know he can't be touched by. He can't touch this thing. He can't read this, this. I've gone beyond the touch of Jesus. Here's what the gospel says, that you have a high priest in Jesus that knows what you're going through. He knows what you're feeling. He experienced the human condition, yet without sin, which makes him relatable and also suitable to care for you. He can be touched by what you're going through. You're not untouchable to him. He's a reach away. He's right there, and she reaches out, and she touches him. And here's what the scriptures say. Let us, therefore, because of this truth, let us come boldly to this throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find our own grace to help in our time of need. 
Let us also reach out to him because he's there caring, caring for us. I love that Jesus says to this woman, he says, your faith has made you well. Isn't that sweet? It's not my garment didn't make you well. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that. Or, 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 you know, in some ways your works have made you well, but your faith, it was your faith. Now, faith in and of itself doesn't have like some sort of righteous merit that God looks on and he goes, okay, you're having faith, therefore you're saved. No, but faith is simply the way that we receive what God has done. That's what faith is. God, I just want to receive what you have for me. That's faith. God, I want to receive what you've promised and what you've said. Her faith makes her well. Lastly, we'll close with this and we'll bring up the band to, to wrap up our service. Uh, we, the last thing we see is a dynamic illustration. We see a display of, desperate, of a desperate invocation. We see a divine interruption and we see a dynamic illustration. Um, I mean, if I ended this, this, the sermon here, it'd be like, yeah, that's so great. You know, like, what an amazing thing. Jesus healed this woman. It's been 12 years. Meanwhile, Jairus is over here like, what about my daughter, right? Meanwhile, Jairus is the one sitting. Everyone's like cheering. Yeah, he healed her. And Jairus is over there disappointed. Jesus, you forgot about me. Jesus, what about me? It seemed like an interruption, but instead we see this incredible dynamic illustration. It's interesting. I chose the word dynamic here, too, because the word that's, that's used there in Greek for power is the Greek word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite or dynamic. That's what's being displayed from the life of Jesus is his dynamic power, a power that's greater than whatever you might come under. And we see an illustration of it being even greater than what we could expect. It says, while Jesus was speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, and they said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, when you read it in context, the last verse, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is intentional language. This happens. Then the ruler of the synagogues, uh, those come from his house and say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble Jesus any further? You've been praying for the thing and the door hasn't opened. Why are you still praying? Get away from that. It's done. He can't help you anymore. And Jesus turns to the man and he says, do not be afraid. Just like this woman had faith, you also need to believe. Listen, when things don't pan out the way you expected them to, when Jesus didn't show up in the time frame that you set for him to, believe, trust, keep going by faith. Jesus permits no one to follow him except his inner circle of homies, Peter, James, and John. He comes to the house of the rulers of the synagogue, and he, there's a whole, I love this word, tumult going on. And there's people weeping and wailing loudly. In that culture, you had actually paid professionals, professional wailers. Before Bob Marley, you had professional wailers <laughs> who would show up, and they would grieve on behalf of the family. These are professional mourners. I don't know, I guess actors is what they are. I don't know. And Jesus shows up, and he comes in, and he goes, why are you guys weeping? He goes, the child's not dead, but sleeping. And Jesus isn't saying, like, literally, guys, she's not dead. <laughs> she's actually literally just unconscious. Come on. That's not what he's saying. He's going to say, in a minute here, rise up and walk. He, he's, he's speaking to her state, which is, because of what he's going to do, an it's, it might as well be an unconscious state. This isn't the end is what he's saying. She's about to be awoken. It says, and they ridiculed him. I mean, these professional whalers have seen dead bodies before. They're like, yeah, she's not sleeping. She's, we checked her pulse. She's definitely dead. It said, but when he had put them all outside, I love that. He's like, just get out. Get out, you whalers. He took the father and the mother of the child. Notice the care of Jesus. Notice how he grabs mom and dad by the hand and says, come in. And those who were with him, they entered where the child was lying. I can't imagine being mom and dad in this situation, coming into the room and seeing your formerly sick daughter now in that state. He took the child by the hand. He said, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And we know how the story goes. It says, immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. What seemed like disappointment was really just a setup for Jesus to show how much greater he really was. Well, Jesus, you didn't show up here when I expected you to. And, I, and there was a moment in my life where I doubted anything was ever going to be possible again. Because here's what I found myself in this place of disappointment. And maybe this isn't 
a setback after all. Maybe this is a chance for you to illustrate how powerful you really are. Let him take you by the hand to see that, to follow him, to see whatever disappointment you faced. Maybe Jesus in your life has been late. He didn't show up at the time. Maybe that thing you prayed for has died. And you didn't get the answer you expected. The hope we have in Jesus is that his power still remains stronger. He can be trusted in. You know, for those of us who, I think about this a lot, who prayed for our loved ones who were on their deathbeds and they passed away. I persevered in prayer and faith for my mom. Do you know that we still don't have to live in disappointment? You know what the good news of the gospel is? That Jesus said this, that he's going to raise us up on the last day, just like this woman. No, I have hope that one day I'm going to be reunited with my mother in a real tangible way because of the power of Jesus, because of the care of Jesus, because of his ability to take what looks like defeat and overcome it with his grace and his goodness. Is this not what he's done in each of our lives? The Bible says this, that you, he made alive. This was us. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That was you and me, bound by this in this state of deadness. It says this, but God, but God who is rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us, because he cared for you and I, it says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He rose us up. He raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And in the ages to come, he's going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you something? Your future is nothing more than the eternal care and goodness of God. That's the future. It's, that's all that's ahead of you. Mercy, whether you like it or not, you cannot outrun the mercy and goodness of God. He's chasing you down. He's pursuing your life with a power greater than anything you could have ever imagined. And this is what we see here in this passage, the care of Jesus. Listen, the way we want to reflect upon this together as we close here on our Mother's Day service is by coming to the communion table. This is a meal that scripture that Jesus himself gives to his followers. Um, it's a serious meal that's reserved for those that are saved by Jesus and are following Jesus. And even for those who are following Jesus, it's a serious meal for us to approach soberly and thoughtfully. It's a time for us, before we partake of these elements, to think about our lives, to think about sin that I need to bring before Jesus and just confess to Him. It's a time for us to ultimately see that sin hanging on a cross paid for in full through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what these elements are for. And if anything, can I remind you, this is a time to remember that God has and does care for you. He's cared for you deep down even into the very need of your salvation.